hard to believe it was just about a year ago we broke ground at our Half Moon expansion. And now, over the past 12 months, we've seen that project completed, and we've moved into the next phase of our campaign, the Silver Phase, which means renovations at Latham. In this next phase for 2020, our giving total is just over 2.8 million, and that means we have the money we need to start the first projects here at Latham. As we move into the second phase, it's important to keep the purpose of this campaign squarely in front of us, and that's to bring the love and message of Jesus to our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the world. We get that from our campaign verse, which is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In addition to giving, the most important thing you and I can do to contribute to the 2020 vision is to pray. Pray for our leaders and elders as they make important decisions for future projects. Pray for the safety of our construction teams and also pray for the staff here at Latham as they adjust to new life under construction. And don't forget to pray for our communities who desperately need to know Jesus. To get the most recent news about the 2020 vision, you can visit our landing page at gracefellowship.com. And of course, we'll be back next month with more updates. Now, Pastor Rex is going to bring the next message in our current sermon series, Jesus, the Sacrificial Savior. It's a great word and a great update. It's always good to know kind of how things are going, and they're going incredibly well. Thank you so much for your faithful participation in all of these projects. Well, let me ask you, do you believe the Bible is more a book of promises or more a book of principles or more a book of warnings? I'd be curious as to how you would answer that. For instance, is it more of a book of promises? Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which you do not know. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Repent and be baptized and you will be saved. All these promises. Is that mostly what scripture is about? Or is it not so much promises to be believed and claimed? Is it more a book of principles to be considered. For instance, death works in us, but life in you, the apostle said. That's a principle that's at work in the world. Or how about a principle like this? When I am weak, then I am strong. Or for though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed by day by day. All these principles are things like whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Is it a book of promises or principles or could it be the third? Is it more of a book of warnings, things to be heeded? Don't be deceived, God cannot be mocked. Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Be warned. Or maybe a principle or a warning like this. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. 
I would be so curious as to how you would answer that. Is it promises, principles, or warnings? Well, Scripture is certainly jam-packed with all three of those, but today's passage is strongly weighted toward that third category. Here in Luke 21, Jesus gives a series of warnings to his disciples to prepare them for the calamity that is to come. And this is a perilous time in the life of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Within the next 72 hours, he's going to be arrested, interrogated, beaten, and crucified. And one of Jesus' teachings was, look, they did this to me, they're going to do it to you. Servant's not above his master. If they hated and persecuted me, guess what? It's going to be the experience for many of you as well. That was a warning, a heads up from the lips of our Lord Jesus. And so he warns them about these dangers that are on the way. And this section we're studying today is called the Olivet Discourse. Some of your Bibles may even have that little title uh, there at the start of this section. Now, I want you to be aware as we dive in, there has been more scholarly debate about this section we're looking at today than probably any other section of the Gospels. So that means we need to look at this and enter it with a spirit of humility, but also with open minds ready to learn. And as we walk through this chapter, Luke 21, I want you to particularly notice the tone of it. Because Jesus here gives a serious warning for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear what he has to say. So here we go. The first thing he says is this, trust God when what you thought was stable isn't. Still trust God. I'm going to pick up here in verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now he's referring to the ancient temple built by Herod the Great over a period of about 46 years. It was a magnificent building, a gem, a jewel there in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, listen to how the ancient historian Josephus, and he's a huge source of information from this time period, listen to how he describes it. The exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. Now get this. There's gold covering massive portions of the temple face. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. From its summit protruded sharp golden spikes, 
to prevent birds from settling upon and polluting the roof. Some of the stones in the building, get this now, were 45 cubits in length, <laughs> five in height, and six in breadth. In other words, some of the stones in the temple's foundation were about the size of boxcars on a freight train. Enormous. They were breathtaking. The temple in Jerusalem was definitely one of the wonders of the Roman world. So let's face it, Jesus' words must have been shocking. I mean, how could this awe-inspiring building ever be destroyed or even shaken for that matter? And yet that's exactly what happened. Some years later, 30-something years later, the emperor Vespasian's son Titus was dispatched to Jerusalem to conquer it. And it finally happened in 70 A.D. Now, when they first entered the city, he ordered the temple to be spared because he knew it was just a jewel of a building and he didn't want it damaged. But one of his soldiers set a fire in there that gutted the building. The flames were intense. And so Titus later ordered the temple to be razed to the ground. And these greedy soldiers pried the stones apart with massive crowbar-type objects, and they were greedily pillaging the melted gold for themselves that had gone between the cracks of the stones. So Jesus' warning here to his disciples was pretty clear. Look, when what you thought was stable and could never be shaken is in jeopardy, you keep on trusting God. Now, I don't know if the elections went the way you wanted them to or not, but I got a word for you. You keep trusting God. I don't know if that company you worked at for all those years and gave the best years of your life to, and they really let you down. I don't know how you feel about that, but you keep trusting God. I don't know if your best friend in the world betrayed you and turned their back, but you keep trusting God. God. You see, when human institutions fail, it's just a vivid reminder to us that the only institution worthy of our full allegiance is the kingdom of God. And the only leader worthy of our full commitment and loyalty is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only life worth pursuing with gusto is as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So, when others freak out and panic, it's a great time for Christian people to let their trust in God grow even deeper and more profound. Boy, I love Psalm 62. Listen to these verses. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock. And my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Are you listening to me? If your hope is in some politician, you got reason to be worried. 
But if your hope and salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got a rock and a hope that can never be shaken. And that's the thing we need to grasp, even in these early verses of this profound passage today, that we've got a foundation that can never be shaken. The second thing here is, keep cool when false prophets get wacky. Keep cool, keep focused, keep cool, because they are going to say some wacky things. Let's read on. Teacher, they ask. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? Now, I kind of like that because that's our first question always. When we know something tragic is coming down, our first question is when. We want to know when this is going to happen. He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near Do not follow them. Now, if you study scripture much at all, you know that it speaks essentially of two different kinds of false prophets. You might call the first kind the mockers. The mockers are those who, when referring to coming events, particularly the second coming of Jesus, they mock the idea and say, "Ah, are you kidding me? Do you really believe that quaint old fable? But Jesus come, that's never going to happen. The apostle Peter wrote about that in the letter we call 2 Peter. Look at what he said. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. Following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You see, they're sneering and going, are you kidding me? This is never going to happen. The world just keeps going on as it is. It's going to be the same old, same old. It's never going to occur. Mockers. And trust me, mockers are alive and well today. But the second kind of false prophet is what you might call the sensationalist. And trust me, TV and radio and the internet are full of sensationalists. They use the second coming for economic gain. And they terrify believers by making wild predictions about what's going to happen and exactly when it's going to happen. And hear me today. It only takes a cursory study of history to see that history is littered with so-called prophets who made outrageously specific claims about when Jesus was going to come. But hear me today, none of them, not in any single case, not a single one of them was ever accurate. None. They're batting zero. And so he says, look, don't be duped by date setters and sensationalists. But he goes on here, verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, whenever we personally go through tumultuous events... We tend to think this must be it. 
And whenever people go through wars, horrific wars, listen, every single time they wonder, could this be the end of the world? It happened during the Napoleonic Wars in the early 1800s. People were sure this had to be the end of time. Napoleon had to be the Antichrist. It happened during the Civil War, believe it or not. And people were just absolutely convinced this is the end of the world. It happened during World War I. They were now this year kind of commemorating the 100th anniversary of the ending of World War I called the Great War. They thought there'd never be another one like it. Little did they know World War II was on the way. But people thought, this is it. This is the end. Same with World War II. And it goes on and on. Will Durant wrote, war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have not seen war. And virtually everyone who's lived during horrible times has wondered, could this be the end of time? And you start throwing some of these other signs in there, and people can be duped. You remember the Heaven's Gate cult? During one particular Holy Week back in March of 1997, there were a number of unusual events that all came together during Holy Week of all times. There was a vernal equinox. There was a partial solar eclipse during that week. And then you had, or excuse me, a lunar eclipse. And then you had the amazing haley Bopp comet that was lighting up the sky night after night. And so Marshall Applewhite convinced a group of 38 followers of his to commit suicide with him. And he promised them, listen, the Messiah is right behind the Haley-Bopp Comet. And we're going to go meet him together. Just join me in this suicide. And tragically, 39 of them died. And you, you see stuff like that and you think, ah. People be so naive. And that's why Jesus is saying here, look, keep cool when false prophets get wacky. Because they're going to get wacky and false prophets are always going to be there. Both mockers and sensationalists. Jesus' point usually is, stay ready. That, I believe, is the primary emphasis of Scripture. Just live ready all the time. When I was going through high school, I, I kind of lumped my teachers into two categories. There were those wonderful, godly teachers who told you exactly when the test was going to be. You know what I'm saying? They spelled it out for you. You know the day and the hour? When the test was going to come, you knew essentially what was going to be on the test. And man, it was easy to get ready. You, you didn't even need to go to class. You didn't need to worry about anything. And so if you're like me, I can kind of assimilate large amounts, of, large amounts of material in a short time. And so I could just cram and cram and cram and get ready and do great on that test. And then though were, there were those annoying teachers, ungodly teachers who had the audacity to give pop quizzes. I couldn't stand those teachers in high school. Because you know what? That meant you had to stay ready. 
You had to keep up. You had to not only go to class, you had to read the material. And when I went into college, I actually started studying on a level I'd never studied before. I didn't care about homework and all that. In high school, I could just kind of get by by going to class. But in college, it was different. And so I started studying a lot more, and I did my readings, and I kept up with my readings. I didn't rely on cramming anymore. And you know what I noticed? My stress about those pop quiz teachers went away. You know why? Because I stayed ready. And if you're walking with Jesus Christ every day, and you're ready, and some sensationalist comes along and says, hey, it's going to happen. Next week, he's coming back. You just go, bring it on. I'm ready. Praise God. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't have to change anything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go get right with anybody. I'm living ready all the time. And that's the way he wants us to live. He said in Matthew's account, so you also be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So don't get all hyper about the mockers and the sensationalists. Jesus warned that would-be prophets are going to get wacky. There's a third thing here. Be bold when haters hate. Did you know that if you follow Jesus, you're going to have some haters? And here he gives a challenge, sort of in the form of a warning, look, when that happens, when haters hate, you be bold, verse 12. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. Now, isn't that a cheery message? Wow. Woo. But Jesus consistently warned his disciples, look. All people are going to hate you because of me. Make no mistake, they're going to be haters. And you're going to have to be bold. And listen again, if you just dip into Christian history a little bit, you see that that's exactly what has happened. Generally speaking, all over the world, wherever Christians have lived, they've been ridiculed and mocked and arrested and tortured and thrown to wild beasts in the Circus Maximus and burned at the stake in Nero's gardens. And it continues even today in Muslim-dominated countries like the Sudan, in communist countries like North Korea, in countries like Somalia where Christianity is illegal. Christians risk their lives every single day for their faith. We just need to be aware of that. Now, thankfully, here in America, we haven't experienced much of that. In America, we live in a culture and in a time here over the last 200 plus years, where Christianity has not only been tolerated, it's actually been encouraged. It's been the dominant religion and belief system in our country. But it's important to me that you understand that historically speaking, what we've experienced in America is abnormal. I just want you to know that. It's abnormal, historically speaking. It's not generally how Christians have been treated. And there are some signs that it is changing. Some of you are encountering more and more challenges in your workplace. Your moral values are questioned. There's all kinds of opposition about your beliefs. 
And I believe it will intensify in the future. That's exactly what Jesus predicted. And again, that's, that's more of the norm. He goes on, verse 13, this will result in your being witnesses to them. So in other words, through the persecution, you are witnesses. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom. I like that. Words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Now, some people sadly use that as a proof text not to prepare. I think that's a sad usage. At other places, Scripture says you be ready to make a defense for the hope that you have in Christ. But this verse should be a great assurance to us that as we witness for God, he will give us the words we need when we need them. So be bold. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. This is just getting happier by the minute, isn't it? I've talked with several of you whose spouse is hostile to your faith. They just really want nothing to do with your Jesus. Others of you have parents or children or close relatives who mock your beliefs and make life miserable when you are around them. Here's a line you ought to put under glass and put on your hallway wall. All men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Now notice... He says, on the one hand, some of you are going to die for my sake. On the other hand, he says, not a hair of your head will perish. So what happens to some is going to be very different than the experience of others. But I think the general tone here is, look, when you testify for me as you're persecuted, you are going to go on enjoying the abundant eternal life that is yours in Christ. When the early Christians were persecuted, you can read this in the book of Acts, I see two primary responses to intense persecution. And I think these ought to be our responses today if we encounter it. Number one, they rejoiced. You can't read the book of Acts without getting the message that when they suffered for their faith, they rejoiced that they were even counted worthy of suffering for the name. And secondly, they prayed. They prayed that when more persecution came, they would be bolder in the future and represent Jesus even better time after time. So, be bold when haters hate. Fourth, take action. Take action when the end seems near. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. 
They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, it's my eschatological belief that this is clearly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD. As the Roman army stormed the city, 600,000 plus Jewish people were were slaughtered, and about 100,000, just as Jesus said, you'll be dispersed to these nations, about 100,000 were taken captive to many different nations. And Jesus warned his people, look, when you see that happening in these years to come, when you see these armies closing in on Jerusalem and encircling it, get out of the city. And by the way, Eusebius, who is one of the classic ancient historians, he wrote a book called Ecclesiastical History, which is kind of a staple in seminaries around the world. Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History, he records that when this did occur, just before 70 AD, that Christians, as they saw these soldiers coming, they remembered Jesus' words, and they heeded the warning, and they fled the city. And many Christians saved their families because of this warning. Now, again, you remember I told you there's been more scholarly debate about this Olivet Discourse that we're looking at than any other section in the Gospels. That's the truth. And so scholars are really split on what's happening here. But it's my belief that from verse 25 on, Jesus is shifting the focus. I don't know if he had been looking at the temple up until now, but up until now, it seems that just about everything he said is clearly fulfilled in that destruction in AD 70, but most Bible scholars believe that he's now shifting the focus to the far future. No longer what's going to happen in 30-something years with the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's now shifting it to far away when he returns in glory in his second coming. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, what are these catastrophic events that he's describing here? Is this a nuclear winter? Is this global warming? Is this seismic shifts in the core of the earth? The theories, trust me, are endless. The debate rages on and on. Are these just dramatic metaphorical images to describe upheaval among the nations and world leaders? Could the waves roaring and tossing refer to the stock market having meteoric rises and crashes? Nobody truly knows. But again, the theories are many. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, friends, that hasn't happened yet. That is definitely future. Okay? When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I love what Anne Graham Lott said. 
and referring to this passage and all this upheaval of nations and all the turmoil. And it looks like everything is just falling apart and in dismay. She said, when it looks like things are falling apart, they're really just falling into place. And as a Christian, you need to know that. God has this. God's got this. And while these signs may bring terror to lost people, to those who have trusted the Lord, they actually bring enormous encouragement and hope because we know our redemption is near. Verse 29, he told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now again, let me remind you a third time. More scholarly debate over the Olivet Discourse and what all these things mean than any other passage of Scripture in the Gospels. So, let me give you a couple of possibilities, all right? Some people think that when Jesus referred to the fig tree here, sprouting leaves, he's just using a general illustration and saying, look, just as you know in the springtime when you see the blossoms and the leaves pop out on the tree, you know that summer's near. In the same way, when you see some of these signs I've mentioned, you'll know that my coming is near. It could be that that's what it means. The most popular view in America among Christians, by far, it doesn't happen to be my view, and that's okay. I've got the right to be wrong, don't I? Okay. But this is the most popular view by far, is that Jesus is there referring, when he talks about the fig tree, he's referring to Israel, and that is indeed, by the way, that's undoubtable, that's a sign at times in Scripture of the nation of Israel. Hosea 9, Luke 13. And after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, there was no technically Jewish nation for about 1,900 years until something happened on May the 15th, 1948. And again, this is the most popular belief among, I'd say 95% of evangelical Christians in America, this is the only belief they even know. Only belief they even know. That Jesus was referring to when Israel became a nation again in 1948. And he's saying, this generation that sees Israel become a nation again will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. I've got books in my library where great Christian leaders, I'll not name them just to protect their anonymity, but they swear Back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the world can't go beyond 1988. I'll tell you that right now. Can't go beyond 1988 because Israel became a nation again in 48, and a generation of the Bible is 40 years. It can't go beyond 1988. Some of those people are still on the radio. But then when it didn't happen in 1988, the view got adjusted just a little bit, and, and again, Perhaps rightly so. And then begin to look at Psalm 90, where it says, the length of our days is 70 years or 80. Okay, so let's say that it's not 40 years. Let's say we had that wrong. Let's say it's 70 or 80 years. Well, guess what? If you do the math and you're being literal about these dates, 
Guess what 1918 is? Excuse me, 2018. It's the 70th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation again. So if that is your view, you've really got a reason to kind of perk up and open your eyes right now. And it could be true. And I will say this, if that view is true, and it, this generation literally meant 80 years, then his second coming can't be beyond 2028. Because that would be the 80th anniversary of Israel becoming a nation again. Isn't eschatology fun? It really is. But if you're considering the claims of Christ, I would urge you to get a little urgency. I'd love to actually light a little fire under you today. Take some action. There's a postcard that you can buy in some Christian bookstores, and on the outside it reads, Advice to people trying to make up their minds about Jesus. And you open it up, and it has one word, hurry. And why would you dally around when the stakes are so high? There's one final word here from our Lord that I want us to highlight. Watch and pray even when others lose their focus. Verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Struck by that phrase, it'll close in like a trap. And I believe that there's so many people today oblivious and living lives where they're giving no attention whatsoever to the Lord or these warnings. And he said it's going to close on some like a trap. Family was driving home from church after the preacher had preached on the second coming. And the teenage son got to asking a lot of questions and the dad couldn't answer them all. And he said, well, son... We don't know all the answers. All we know is we've got to live every day as though it were our last. And the teenage boy said, Dad, the last time I lived that way, you grounded me for six weeks. Our idea of real life is like a party out of control. But Jesus said, look, the things of this world are going to pass away. Stay focused on what's important. Make wise choices. Don't waste your one and only life. As a boy growing up, I love that wacky old show, The Beverly Hillbillies. Any of you ever watch that? You got to admit, that's a deep show, wasn't it? Oh, man, that's so deep. But do you remember the premise of that show? Jed Clampett, this old farmer, he becomes a multimillionaire overnight when oil is discovered on his property. And one of his friends says, Jed, when are we are you going to move away from here? We're going to go to the city, man. And Jed Clampett says, now, why would I do that? And his friend said, well, Jed, for one thing, you're eight miles from the nearest neighbor. And you, have to, you don't even have running water. You have to bring water in from the outside. And you bathe in lye soap made with your own hands. And when you go to the bathroom, you have to walk 50 yards out there. And outside are all these raccoons and possums and snakes and all kinds of other varmints. 
And it's at that point that Jed Clampett kind of looks up and sighs and said, yeah, why would a man leave all this? Jed was in love with the farm and all of its difficulties because he didn't know anything else. And scripture says, look, don't get all caught up in what you think are the wonderful perks of this world because I've got something so much better for you. Keep your focus on things above. We've been grieved and stunned and saddened this week by all the wildfires going crazy in California. Hundreds of thousands of acres decimated. So many people have lost their lives. We ought to continue to pray for the dear people whose lives have been greatly impacted. So many of them displaced. So many of them lost everything they have. But sadly, some of the dear people who lost their lives clearly heard the warning more than once. You've got to get out of here. You've got to get out of here. You've got to be ready to go. Tragically, some of them have just ignored the clear warnings. We don't know when the Lord is coming for us. A successful life insurance salesman said he used to wrap up every presentation with these words. Now, I don't want to pressure you. You think on this, sleep on this, and if you wake up in the morning, give me a call. We just don't know, do we? So the best option is to be prepared. Father, we thank you for the searing words of Jesus. They are warnings out of love. Be ready. Watch and pray. Don't let that hour come on you like a trap. Thank you that you've told us in advance that danger is on the way. God, I, I pray for that person right now that desperately needs to turn their life over to you. They've been just doing their own thing without regard for your love or your sacrifice for them on the cross or your invitation to eternal life. In this very moment, may they open their life to you. In this very moment, may they say yes and enter into your family and experience your forgiveness. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.